0: Loving Sairam and greetings from Prashanti Nilayam, And also a warm wow welcome to this journey through Swami's immortal classic, Dharma Vahini. I know that Atma Dharma, which is the core topic of these talks, might seem a very difficult subject to grasp. However, This is a perception and not necessarily a reality. We think the topic is difficult because we believe, erroneously I would say, that Atma Dharma is a very vague concept distant from and irrelevant to this day and age. That is what many seem to imagine. I assure you that it is not. Rather, Atma Dharma is not only very specific and concrete, but in fact, very much needed in the present time to guide us literally from minute to minute. It is what I should call an indispensable moral compass. I mean, just look around. There are all sorts of problems around, and if you examine these problems in depth, you would find that they are all manifestations of adharma in some form or the other, which means... That if these problems and difficulties are to be eliminated or at least even diminished to some extent, then we must return to a stricter observance of Dharma and that exactly is where Atma Dharma comes into the picture. I talked about this last time but I thought maybe a bit of repetition would not hurt and that is why I am saying it all over again. I would like to reiterate that although people might feel that Atma dharma is remote and abstract, it is in fact the touchstone against which we must constantly evaluate all our actions. Whenever I mention this to my students, then they immediately clamor for a ready-made rulebook of do's and don'ts that they can regularly consult and check out to see if they are following Atma dharma or not. Sadly, there is no such rule book and in fact, there cannot be any. When I point this out, people tend to get turned off. Actually, the situation is not as bad as it might seem. Let me give a simple example. Take multiplication. In the real world, we encounter all kinds of multiplication problems. Given that fact, it is evident one simply cannot have any book that contains the solutions to all the imaginable multiplication problems. However, there is no reason to worry. What teachers in all schools do is something very simple. They teach multiplication tables. And once one memorizes a reasonable number of tables, one can in principle do any multiplication problem. True! sometimes the problem might be huge. But given time and care, the problem can, in principle at least, be worked out. Maybe we might not be able to do the problem with just pencil and paper, but we can instead teach high-speed computers to do the multiplication. What it all means is that we really do not have to master the solution to all the imaginable problems. Instead, we must have a procedure that would help us to deal with any given situation. It is the same where actions, adherence to atma, dharma, etc. are concerned. Swami says that the situation one is faced with might refer to some problem a parent has, or a wife faces, or an elder in the family has to deal with and so on. This specific situation does not matter that much, provided, We ask the right questions to define the nature of the action, we contemplate. We should ask, Is what I want to do right or wrong? Is it selfish or selfless? Is it full of love? Will it in any way hurt anyone anywhere? Is it likely to harm society in any way? Or is it likely to hurt Mother Earth in any way? Finally, would God approve of what I am doing? If we ask those kind of questions and answer them honestly, and that is important by the way, then we can be sure that the nature of the action contemplated has been checked out and scrutinized carefully. Tell me, is that difficult to follow? It's not all that difficult, is it? The only thing required is resolution to do it. Okay, let's move on and hear what Swami now has in store for us. I quote, When the waves of egoist fear or greed drive one forward, either into the privacy of the home or the loneliness of the forest or to any other refuge, it is impossible to escape suffering. The cobra does not cease to be a cobra when it lies coiled. Then too it is a cobra nevertheless. In daily practice, when acts are motivated by the basic principle of the reality of the Atma, every act becomes stamped to the seal of Dharma. But when acts are motivated by convenience and selfish interests, the Dharmic act becomes pseudo-Dharma. It's a variety of bondage, however attractive it may be. Like prisoners in a jail pushed in a single file by orders, either to the court of trial or to the dining barracks, the prompting of the senses pushes the bondsman forward, either to a place of sorrow or to a place of relief." End of quote. This quote is particularly important for the reason that Swami gives an explicit warning about what would happen if He slip upon adhering to Dharma. Particularly at the present time when many tend to feel that Dharma would not work at all, the warning sounded by Swami assumes special significance. He says essentially, skipping Dharma is like courting a deadly cobra. Swami further reminds us that in the name of being free, etc., one essentially becomes a slave to the senses. Actions then invariably become selfish and are at best pseudo-dharma. While dharma would lead one to bliss, pseudo-dharma is a sure road to misery and suffering, though it might look pleasurable in the short run. Hope you got that. Well, let us continue with Swami and listen to what he has to say next. This time we really have to be very attentive because Swami would be bringing up a very crucial point. Quote, People refer to various duties, rights and obligations. But, these are not the basic Satyadharma. Dharma. They are only means and methods of regulating the complications of living. They are not fundamental. All these moral codes and approved behavior prompted by the need to cater to two types of creatures and two types of nature, namely, masculine and feminine". The important and interesting thing about the above quote is that for the first time we are having a reference to gender, to men and to women. In the scriptures, the specific rules meant for men and women are referred to respectively as Purusha Dharma and Stri Dharma. And clearly they have, among other things, a lot to do with married life. But, says Swami, both working passages, that is to say Purusha Dharma and Stri Dharma, have to conform to Atma Dharma. That is the important point of the quote just offered. Now, reference to gender issues might possibly make many listeners, especially the young ones, become quite apprehensive. They might feel that we are now in the 21st century and that sometimes what is written in the scriptures is irrelevant to the modern times. I am conscious of such fears and that is why I wish to leave the entire issue of Dharma to be covered for Radio Sai, by a lady devotee who has critically examined Swami's teachings on the subject, provided we can find a volunteer for this job. For my part, I would like to comment on just the following. 1. What women represent in the general scheme of creation and 2. What role desires play in the life of ordinary people, especially the desire associated with physical attraction that brings men and women together. Let me start at a rather abstract level. If you look at creation at a basic level, there are two fundamental entities, consciousness and energy. These entities are patently manifest in all living beings, irrespective of whether one believes in God or not. Nor is the presence of these two fundamental entities something that depends on which religious faith one follows. The fact of the matter is, That consciousness and energy are empirical realities and we do have to come to terms with them in some form or the other. Next, if we consider inanimate matter, the question is, can one associate consciousness with inanimate matter at all? Here, there are two quite different points of view. Scientists of today simply dismiss the idea that there can be any trace whatsoever of consciousness in inert matter, and that is that. Thus, for them, matter is matter, with properties and attributes of various kinds as discovered by scientists. And after Einstein's epoch-making discovery in 1905, it is now universally accepted in the scientific community that one energy is just another aspect of matter, And two, energy and matter are interconvertible. However, believers in Vedanta maintain that consciousness is present even in inanimate matter, though largely in a passive form. Swami has reiterated this and sometimes narrates the story of the weeping series that has also been documented by Dr. John Hislop, who was a witness to that incident. I shall not go into all that, but confine myself to humans. In their case, everyone including Atheists accepts that consciousness and energy are both present in humans. The big difference of course is with respect to what exactly consciousness means and its fundamental significance. Naturally, I shall here adopt the Vedantic point of view and make my remarks drawing upon various things said by Swami in His discourses. I shall start on this part of the talk by drawing attention to the fact that in the Indian tradition, it is usual to associate consciousness with Shiva and energy with Shiva's concert Parvati. At times, Shiva is considered to be the symbol of the Higher Spirit and Parvati to be similarly the symbol of matter. Symbolically, Shiva is hailed as the universal father while Parvati is hailed as the universal mother. In such a representation, clearly Shiva and Parvati are visualized as male and female respectively and considered to be distinct. Yet, sages and seers have always noted that though, in a biological sense, males and females are distinct, both have consciousness as well as energy. Thus, humans are often portrayed via a form that is half male and half female. The deity that symbolizes such a joint representation is called Ardhanarishvara. Maybe I will return to this a little later. Meanwhile, a question now arises of the two namely consciousness and energy, which is primary. This is an interesting question because at the argumentative level one can reduce it to who is greater, is it Shiva or is it Parvati? There have been any number of debates dealing with this and naturally there has been no resolution. There is the solidly Shiva camp, the staunchly Parvati camp and the thoroughly confused camp making up the rest. Thus it is that today you find that while some focus on the worship of Shiva, others concentrate on Devi. And of course there are folklores that make one or the other entity primary. There are yet others who play it safe by worshipping both Shiva and Parvati. Those who think deeply about such matters sometimes wonder, What's all this? What's really going on? What exactly am I supposed to believe in? Fortunately, the deepest aspects of Vedanta provide all the answers and I am drawing attention to all this so that one gets a better perspective of the so-called gender issue. In Vedanta, there are two fundamental levels. Firstly, the level that is above creation and secondly, the level that is below creation. Below creation refers to the universe that we live in and it is here that consciousness and energy have apparently distinct meaning and connotation. Above creation, when God is all by himself, there is no such duality. is pure consciousness with the so-called energy aspect latent and embedded within him. In other words, above creation, Parvati fuses into Shiva and becomes one with him, while below creation, Shiva and Parvati have individuality but function jointly to play a role larger than their individual aspects would imply. All this might sound quite fuzzy and rather vague, but shortly I shall amplify them with more remarks. At this stage, it is useful to make a brief reference to the many mythological tales that relate to Shiva and Parvati. There are many versions of this story and I am not going to discuss which of these different versions is the most authentic one, etc. My own view is that the author of each version was trying to communicate one important message relating to how the male and the female of the human species must together work in partnership to uphold dharma here on earth. I admit, this is a rather unconventional approach. However, on listening to my point of view, I am confident that many would concede that there is some merit in my argument. Getting back to the folklore concerning Shiva and Parvati, although as I said there are many versions, there is something common to all of these. Those core points are the following. In the beginning, Shiva is in deep meditation, and Parvati tries to attract the attention of Shiva with her charm and beauty. She fails because Shiva, lost in meditation, ignores her. Parvati then seeks the help of the god of romance, who tries to disturb Shiva by shooting the arrow of love. Shiva comes out of his meditation and reduces the one who disturbs him into ashes, with a fierce look. Having done that, Shiva goes back into meditation. Her plans to smother Shiva with her beauty and charm having failed, Parvati realizes that romance is not the way to win the attention of Shiva. She then begins to live the life of a hermit, performing various austerities. Through this, she attains spiritual maturity learning to rise above the body without rejecting it. In due course, Shiva accepts Parvati as his consort and they become united in marriage. As a married couple, both Shiva and Parvati play complementary roles, necessitated by their distinct human forms. However, their family life is towards a larger cosmic purpose. Together, they demonstrate how one goes through life not by vainly trying to annihilate desires and aspirations all in one go, but by gradually rising above worldly desires and attachments through a process of constant sublimation. I shall soon offer more comments on all this, but in the meantime I have to point out, that when one studies in depth the remarks addressed by Swami in Vaini specifically to women, it would greatly help if the above remarks are kept in view. Let me get back to the story of Shiva and Parvati and describe how I see it. Let me start at the beginning when Shiva is in deep meditation while Parvati tries to attract him with her charm and beauty. Shiva rejects her attention and indeed burns the god of romance. Who said Parvati Sikhs. The question might be asked, if Shiva was all that serious about meditation, why did he later marry Parvati and become a householder? That's a good question and my own interpretation of this folklore is as follows. Basically, folklores of ancient India all had a hidden meaning. I tend to think that the hidden meaning of Act One of the Shiva Parvati Alliance is as follows. In ancient India, boys at a very early age were left by the father with a guru who, after performing the Upanayanam ceremony, initiated the boy into Brahmacharya. While Brahmacharya is often translated as the practice of celibacy, the more significant aspect of it is that the one initiated meditates deeply on Brahman. It was felt that without such a deep contemplation, the student would not be able to appreciate the subtle nuances of Vedic teachings into which he was drilled year after year by the Guru. It is through a combination of constant chanting and contemplation as well as meditation that the young aspirant sheds his spiritual ignorance. And as his ignorance diminished, he understood better the implications of and the necessity for dharma in day-to-day life. In this phase of life, therefore, the young aspirant who in physical age would be approaching the age 17 to 18 was expected to not yield in the least to any temptation to seek sense gratification. Like the meditative Shiva and the folklore, He was expected to be ruthless in not giving any quarter to physical desires. This part of the folklore also gives the hint to young maiden that they for their part would do well not to distract young brahmacharis while they are still undergoing their training with their guru. On the other hand, through the observance of appropriate austerities, they must not only transform their mental outlook, but also equip themselves to play a rightful role alongside men when the time came. We now move to Act 2, when Shiva, shedding his earlier isolation, is willing to accept a now evolved and spiritually mature Parvati as his consort. The message for ordinary mortals is that after gaining a thorough grounding in the scriptures, and thus completing studies with the Guru, the Brahmachari gets ready to enter life, meaning, he prepares to get married and lead the life of a grahastha or householder. Many, especially in the West, might find all this a bit perplexing. They might wonder, why the rigid uh, insistence on rigorous celibacy and then a sudden 180 degree turnabout? Actually, there is no turnabout. Rather, it's a case of everything at the right time and in the right manner. While in ancient times all this was well understood and did not require any elaboration, the present age is such that I must add some explanation. In ancient India, Dharma was always given the highest importance and placed above everything else. Incidentally, that is why Swami speaks ever so often about Dharma and also wrote the Dharma Vaini many, many years ago. It was accepted in those times that life was a gift given by God, mainly to elevate oneself through steadfast adherence to Satya and Dharma. The first part of this lifelong drill involved getting ready for being a householder by becoming proficient in the scriptures and the practical aspects of the observance of Dharma. The second stage of life began with marriage. This raises many questions. Does not married life involve conjugal relations, etc.? Does not such relationship involve physical desires? What happens then to sense control drill so intensely during the brahmacharya phase, etc.? Indeed, without adequate understanding, it might appear that the Indian way of life is full of contradictions. On the contrary, the ancients had delicately choreographed the various stages of life so that in every stage, one was in constant tune with dharma in a manner best suited for that phase of life. Life was defined in terms of four stages with detailed goals and objectives for each stage. These were codified mostly for men and they were as follows. Stage 1, Brahmacharya. And this, I have already mentioned. Stage 2, Grahastha, the man gets married and leads the life of a householder. Stage 3, Vanaprastha, the couple having reached old age, during which period I suppose the children would have grown up and entered family life themselves, retired to the forest. What it really means is that the couple substantially decreased their attachments to things material as also to the family. Thus, mentally preparing to focus more and more on God and seek to merge with him when the time came. After all this comes stage four, when the man becomes a complete renunciate. That is, technically, he embraces sannyasa. As a sannyasi, the man leaves home, making the entire world his home and in a sense, the whole world as his family. He's supposed to have absolutely no attachment of any kind, including to his wife and children. Don't ask me what happens to his wife. Frankly, I don't know the answer and I guess the children were supposed to take care of her. Seen from the perspective of today, all this might seem odd, meaningless and even wrong. I submit we should not rush to judge the lifestyle of people who lived 5000 years ago. More important is the question, what is the fundamental basis for structuring a four-stage roadmap? The answer to that is well known. In fact, Swami Himself has spelt it out and the answer is contained in one single word, Purusharthas. Purusharthas is a topic in itself and it's too late now to discuss with that in this talk. Maybe I will do it next time. Meanwhile, Let me thank you for being with me and I do hope you benefited from this talk and I also hope you will join me again next time. God bless. Jai Sai Ram.